Hey, Lighthouse Niagara family, this is Pastor Joel Sloss. I hope that the message you received today blesses you so, so much. It is time that we transition now to a word, uh, and, and I will greet you as I always do. Good morning, Lighthouse Church family. Children are dismissed. <laughs> and that is the way I always greet you guys. Today is a good day. Uh, as I came to Young Adults Bible study yesterday morning, I got out of my car and I shielded my eyes as I recognized the sun beaming down on me. I recognized how I had come dressed in a t-shirt on the 16th day of September already and I felt the warmth of the sun along with the uh, cool fall air and I thought to myself, today is a good day. And I also thought to myself, today is a good day to go golfing. For those who do not know, uh, I love to golf, and that is something that I inherited from my father, who is a much better golfer than me. <laughs> yeah, I deserve that. Now, unfortunately, yesterday was also my dedicated day to teach the Young Adults Bible Study uh, and to prepare my sermon for today's service, and so I was unable to go golfing. And as I sat in the Bible study, I found the thoughts coming to my mind, boy, it would be nice to go golfing. And yet I knew the purpose for the day was not to golf. Yet it was a good day. The, the day the Lord had made and his purposes were good for me in that day as well to, to speak with our young adults and to prepare my, my sermon. And that made it a good day. Now perhaps I will go golfing tomorrow, uh, but will the weather still be okay for golfing tomorrow? Will it be the perfect crisp fall day where the air is perfectly cool while the, the sun warms my skin enough to wear a short sleeve collared shirt? Perhaps not. But regardless of whether I golf or not, or whether I golf in perfectly cool fall air or not, it will be a good day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice, and I will be glad in it. Amen? So then why did I spend the first two to three minutes of my sermon writing about my deep desire to go golfing. Was it that while I was writing this yesterday, the sun was still beaming through my windows of my house, reminding me that there were more fortunate people out golfing? Was it because on my phone I have an app that is constantly updating me about my family members and friends who were golfing at the very same time I was writing my sermon? Perhaps. Perhaps those elements were fresh on my mind when I wrote my sermon, but what had come to mind for me was the joy I have when I go to the course. You see, for golfers like me, the best part of golfing is driving there. Or perhaps slightly before getting in the car. I think of myself all giddy as I uh, get off the phone after booking my tea time, and, and I walk over to my closet and I choose from my array of, of golf apparel, getting dressed for the occasion. Let me set the scene. Here I am in this loud, colorful outfit with uh, this vibrant pink Nike golf shirt, uh, with my favorite silver visor and, and these same bright blue pants that I'm wearing right now. I mean, I'm dressed to the nines, and, and there are very few sports like golf that demand that in order to get on the course or the field to play, you must dress more nicely to play it than when you take your wife out for a date. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> but whether I am playing the best course or the worst course, I always dress well, because it sets the tone in my mind that I'm going golfing, something I rarely get the chance to do. And you can ask my wife. 
Before I go to the golf course, I will sometimes spend an hour or two already dressed in my golf attire. Full golf attire. I mean, I am literally wearing my golf cleats around the house, feeling them click on the floor as I walk on a surface not intended for cleats. Don't tell my father-in-law who is renovating my house. (laughs) But when every time I feel that click on the floor, I'm reminded in every step what it means. I'm going golfing. But much more than this, I will go and get my golf bag and I'll walk over to the kitchen an hour in advance and eagerly begin selecting drinks from the fridge that will keep me cool and refreshed on the course and snacks to put in my golf cart in case I need to satiate a small hunger that would otherwise throw off my game. I think, okay, now I'm going to kiss my wife goodbye as she rolls her eyes knowing I won't be back for a few hours. I think of loading my clubs into the car and getting into the vehicle and driving there with a big grin on my face, arriving there 30 minutes early to clean off my clubs, get my scorecard in order, maybe do a little chipping and a putting. And if I'm feeling really frisky, what I'll do is I'll go to the driving range and see if I can fix my slice. And a little hint for those who haven't golfed with me, I can't. And finally, the time has come. I greet my friends who have arrived to go golfing with me. We pull up to the first tee, overly excited, Uh, I inform everyone that I'll tee off first because I, even though it's a disadvantage to tee off first, I just can't wait any longer. I have to get started. I push my tee into the ground. I place my ball. I take a few practice swings. And finally, after all this wait, I promptly chunk my first shot 30 feet toward a water hazard. All of that preparation for nothing. And so I find myself so often on the course asking myself, why do you keep doing this to yourself? You get so excited to go golfing only to remember how infuriating this sport can be. I find that for every good shot I hit, I hit three more bad ones. But every time you hit a good one, your love is reignited. I've played rounds where I've shot terribly for the first 17 holes, but I place a perfect approach shot beside the hole on 18 and I birdie it, and suddenly I can't wait to get back to the course next weekend. But it does beg the question, why do you keep doing this to yourself? What are you placing you're hoping. Now let's remove this question from the humor of just how atrocious my golf game is. Seriously, what is it truly on your heart? What is it that you put your hope in? What is it that you long to obtain and that once you get it, you know all will be well, you'll be very satisfied and and very content. Your life will then be happy. For some in the congregation, like my wife, who has recently taken up the brave endeavor of going back to school, it's getting the degree. For others, it's getting married to that special someone. Or maybe it's moving to a new town where things will be better for you. Maybe getting that dream job, having children, traveling overseas, moving into a new home. Or maybe it's something as simple as getting to the weekend so you can finally catch your breath. I'm confident that everyone here this morning, in fact, everyone all over the world, believer or not, there is something that they're placing their hope in. So what is it for you this morning? What are you placing your hope in? You see, there are two serious problems with the list of hopes I just mentioned. The first problem is that in this life, many of the things that we aspire to, the things we place our hope in, simply will not be realized. That is to say, maybe you won't pass that final exam to get the credentials for the field you want to work in. Maybe that special someone you had your heart set on will marry someone other than you. 
so on and so forth. We know the fact is in our lives, we are sure to experience many major disappointments. The things that we dream of, that we strive for, they don't always come to pass and our hopes are dashed. So that's the first problem, our, our hope may never be achieved, but to this you may reply, yeah, that's true. There are many disappointments in this life and many of our hopes will never be fulfilled, but on the other hand, sometimes our hope is fulfilled. And that's right. Sometimes we get exactly what we were hoping for, and that brings us to the second problem. You see, the second problem is that sometimes when we get exactly what we're hoping for, we soon discover that it doesn't bring true happiness and fulfillment like we thought it would. Sure, we're excited and very happy when we first get it, but as the weeks and months pass, by initial excitement and, and happiness, they fade away. So then what do we do? We usually set our heart on a new hope, and we start that cycle all over again. On the one hand, we don't get what we hoped for and are disappointed. On the other hand, we do get it, and we're still disappointed because we soon discover that it doesn't bring real, lasting happiness, real joy to our life like we thought it would. So what is the answer? The answer is clear. We must find something that we can place our trust in because it is certain. Do not take a chance on being disappointed. We have, some, we have to find something that cannot fail, something that is certain to take place. And secondly, when it does happen, we must be sure that it will not disappoint, that it will provide an even greater joy than we had imagined, and that joy won't be temporary, but it will last forever. Today we will look at the only hope that is sure, but, we will, but, but also brings enduring joy. So our message this morning is on the hope of the resurrection. You see, over a thousand years before Jesus was even born, this prophecy was made in Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The promise that was made was that Jesus' body would not remain in his grave and decay. This is one of the earliest indications in Scripture of Jesus' soon-coming resurrection. And when I say soon-coming, I mean a, a thousand years in the future. <laughs> you see, in fact, Jesus himself also promised or stated on eight distinct occasions to his disciples that he was going to raise from the dead, uh, of which these eight, I will read for you just three. The first, John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The next is in John 10. 17 to 18, when Jesus says, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And the last I will read from you is from Matt 20, 18 to 19. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, 
and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and, and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Amen. So Jesus didn't just mention his upcoming resurrection and passing. It was a major emphasis of his teaching to his disciples. In, ad- in addition to this, Jesus made numerous general statements about the resurrection or promises regarding resurrection for his followers. In John eleven twenty one to 25, we see Jesus as he speaks to Martha, a grieving sister and a dear friend of Jesus's who had just lost her brother Lazarus, who was also a dear friend of Jesus. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus' question to her, do you believe this, is an interesting one, because it's at the very heart of this sermon today. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and likewise will raise up all of his followers? John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Do you believe this? Today we are talking about the hope of the resurrection, and I'm curious by a show of hands. How many here today have based their hopes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise that one day after you die, you will also be resurrected? By a show of hands. Praise the Lord. By the same show of hands, who here has ever struggled with this assurance of faith? And what I mean is, have you ever thought about the question, what if I'm wrong? What if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? What if I'm not going to rise from the dead either? By a show of hands, who here has ever wrestled with that question? If you raised your hand or if you didn't because you were too ashamed to admit that you have wrestled with this question, I urge you not to be ashamed. I want to read you a a short story, a story contained in Luke. I love the book of Luke. Uh, At one time, I had aspirations of being a creative writer, writing compelling stories, and this is one reason that I love Luke's gospel. As an author, he is a beautiful storyteller who tells us stories that compel us to examine our faith, and one such story he tells is found in Luke 24. Now, I'm going to do something bold here something I've never seen a preacher do, and and there may be a reason for that. But as I prepared my message yesterday, I felt something I had not felt to this point in my career as a pastor. I felt anxious as I sat there with nothing written and no direction. I confessed to my wife that I was very worried that I would not have a word to write, and that it was making me feel nearly sick with worry. The loving wife that she is, she went and got me a cold glass of water and some sourdough bread to eat and assured me that God would provide a word and to eat and to drink and to wait on the Lord. 
And so I decided rather than worry, I would read scripture, which has a calming effect on me. I opened my Bible to Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read for you the entirety of this chapter as I did. I said I was going to do something bold, which is to say I'm going to read an entire chapter of the Bible, which can be a lot of reading when you are preaching. But I want you to treat this not as a reading from Scripture to break down instructions or to extrapolate principles. I want you to place yourself there in the scene. To hear of how the resurrection of Jesus was received by the disciples. The closest men to Jesus who would have heard and known that which was prophesied from generations and that which was told to them personally on eight separate occasions from Jesus' own mouth that he needed to die and conquer death in the resurrection of his body in order that he fulfill his father's desire for him. My hope is that it will encourage those in this audience to not be ashamed about wrestling with the question of what if I'm wrong? What if, I didn't, what if Jesus didn't raise from the dead and I may not either? You see, Luke 24, a section later entitled in the ESV, The Resurrection, and the NKJV translation, He Has Risen, goes like this. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Amen? Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and then they returned from the tomb and told all the things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them, these are disciples, were traveling the same day to a village called Emas, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, restrained so they did not know him. And they said to them, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and, and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, Which things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him, and to be condemned and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came 
saying that they also had seen vision of angels who said he was alive, and certain of those who were sent who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they uh, constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to another, Did not our hearts burn? Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scripture to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them uh, gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass when he blessed them that he Uh, was parted from them and carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. You see, this story of Jesus' resurrection should bring comfort to those who at times wrestle with the question, what if I'm wrong? But what if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? You see, other tellings of these stories even call specifically upon Thomas. Or as we sometimes refer to him, doubting Thomas. Though he struggled initially with his assurance in the faith of the resurrection, being specifically the one called by Jesus to place his fingers in the wounds of Jesus' hands, Thomas was not some timid pushover as you may be tempted to believe when we call him doubting Thomas. After being assured in his faith in the resurrected Jesus, he would go on to spread the gospel in a very hostile nation at the time, in a predominantly Hindu India, where he was martyred for his faith with a spear during prayer on the big hill near Madras by jealous priests. Doubting Thomas martyred for his faith. I'm here to tell you that in everyone's Christian walk, there will come thoughts of questioning your faith, or having your doubts, or wondering if God is really real. 
or if there are things within the Christian faith or truths that have been told to us about God and his character that you will have a hard time understanding or believing. And that's not only just okay, but it is normal. And, and much more than this, it is to our benefit. It is not sinful to wrestle with your faith, but it is the wrestling that actually leads to a deeper, more assured faith in God. Doubt leads us to ask tough questions, to evaluate the validity and sincerity, sincerity of our faith in God. And the doubt is not sinful when it is followed by a wrestling to attain to the truth and believe it. So that when the winds of every doctrine come blowing according to Ephesians 4.4, 4, and when the storms and floodwaters roll in according to Matthew 7, 24 to 27, your house will be built upon the rock of Jesus Christ because you cannot place your full faith in God until you have tested him and known him to be true. Once you have tested the Lord Jesus, you will see he is a firm foundation. So I urge you, don't allow those questions to cause you fear when they come upon you. At times, we need to place our fingers in the wounds of Jesus as he will urge you to do so if he knows it will inspire a radical faith in you like it did for Thomas. You see, even the disciples doubted the things that they had been told again and again by prophets and, and, and uh, teachers and by their own Savior, their own Messiah. They were not. They did not believe the women. They did not believe uh, these, these men on the road who were believers in Jesus. They did not believe the words that he said to them until he revealed it. But this sermon is not written about doubt. It was written about finding hope and having assurance because of the resurrection. Now, for many of us who raised our hands, we believe in the resurrection and that Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father. But how can this bring us hope? How can this resurrection bring us hope? That unlike me getting my hopes up when I go golfing, only to fail miserably, or asking the tough questions in our faith only to waver again and again, how does the resurrection bring unwavering hope and faith? Well, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, does the hard work for us. You see, he, he takes that task of asking those tough questions and wrestling until the answer is certain, something we can place our faith in that is both certain to be true and will not leave us desiring. This water of life that satisfies and never leaves you wanting more. How can we attain to this through the resurrection? Paul begs the question of asking, having known Jesus was crucified, that much is known, uh, that much is known and agreed upon. Jesus really lived and he really did die. Anyone who says otherwise is ignoring factual, historical evidence. I beg you, I ask you, go and look the historical records of Jesus' life and death are there. Anyone who says otherwise is attempting to deceive you, and they have no leg to stand on. You see, those who would attempt to disprove Jesus should, should not seek to claim he did not exist. They should call into question his ability to deliver on his promise that he would be crucified and rise again, claiming he really did not rise from the dead. That's their best bet. It's their best argument. 
And certainly in Paul's day and age, there were many Jewish skeptics, especially those Pharisees who were the adversaries of Jesus and this religion of faith instead of works that was forming before their very eyes. They saw the power they were losing. It, it was slipping from their fingers as people began to believe in this Jesus. And so upon the forming of these rumors that Jesus never raised from the dead, Paul writes to those struggling in their faith. Those who were wrestling with placing their faith not in the life or death of Jesus because they knew he had lived, they knew he had died, but in his resurrection, that is where they cast doubt and what it means to all believers. And so Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, in Corinthians 15, 12 to 18, knowing that this would be spread far and wide. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has been raised. Uh, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are the, of all people most to be pitied. Paul asserts that if Jesus died and was buried and the body remained, then there's absolutely no reason to believe he could ever deliver on any of his other promises either. If the body remained in that tomb, then the promises, not just of eternal life, but, but of everlasting joy, of a kingdom coming on earth and in heaven, all of those promises are not to, believe, be, to, are not to be believed either when he promised, I will also be raised from the dead. He should not be considered a righteous man and, and would certainly not be worthy of our praise or our obedience. He'd be just a liar. And we couldn't trust either him or the Bible on any other issues either, says Paul. And then the cross would have been the final chapter of Christianity. And there would have been no victory over death. Close the book because it would all be over. Then Jesus would be a defeated, dead savior. And in fact, no savior at all. The disciples would have just gone back to fishing for fish instead of fishing for men, and the result, no Christian church. Sure, the, Christ, the crucifixion is central to our faith as believers, but Christianity isn't merely about the crucifixion of Christ. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion would actually be a demonstration of Satan's victory over God. Satan's plan was to kill the Messiah so that he couldn't save his people. Without the resurrection, Jesus' mission to earth would have culminated in the crushing defeat of a miserable, pitiful death on the cross. The gospel means good news, but the crucifixion without the resurrection is bad news. To be good news, there must be a crucifixion, a burial, and a resurrection. And Paul, in fact, continues this line of hard questioning of our faith only uh, to the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Moreover, we are to be found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. 
If in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If there was no resurrection, then we Christians, Paul says, are liars. We're leading people down a false path of destruction rather than a path of hope. We should throw away our faith and get rid of it since it would be worthless and even worse, it would be harmful. We would still be in our sins and we would be truly without hope and those who have died will have perished. They have no more consciousness. They have returned to the dust and simply ceased to exist. If there really was no resurrection, yet we were living our life as if there were, then we would be most pitiful indeed. Since not only would we be wasting our lives praising a dead man, we would be leading others to the same tomb where Jesus' body still laid motionless. This line of reasoning from Paul seems dark. It seems harsh. You see, Paul we often think of as this encouraging figure within the church, but he has a way of making things feel bleak. He does it so often in his writings because he does so to jar people into realizing what they must place their faith in. You see, so many people are believing in the crucifixion, but they're getting told these lies that Jesus still was dead. And he says, that cannot be. You cannot believe both. He must be alive. He concludes this section by stating the alternative of what life means without the resurrection and only the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians 15, 31 to 32, where he says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you what I have in Christ our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, if there is no eternal reward or eternal punishment, if this life is all there is, Paul says, by all means, we should party, live it up, eat some good food, drink whatever spirits dull your mind so that you can ignore the fact that tomorrow death comes for us all. Whoop-de-doo, what a life to live. But, but, Paul asks, what if those who raised our hands are right? And Jesus really did rise from the dead. And we will also be raised from the dead just as he promised. What then? How should that influence the way we live our lives? Friends, regardless of your position on this issue, whether you raised your hands this morning or not, I am here to tell you the good news of the gospel and the truth and the eternal hope of the resurrection that when the women went to the tomb, it was found empty. That Jesus did raise from the dead as was prophesied from generations and he claimed he would by his own mouth eight times just as he said the temple would be destroyed, he rebuilt it three days later. I tell you the truth this morning, I am not lying. Jesus is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. This assurance does not come only in the proof of the two-ton tombstone that was rolled from the tomb's entrance, nor is the assurance found only in the angels that sat inside the tomb, empty tomb telling Mary Magdalene, who came to dress the body, that Jesus was alive. The assurance 
of Jesus' resurrection isn't found in tales about an empty tomb, but in the miracles that are performed in this house today. When you want to know if a plant is returning to life after a cold, hard winter, you don't ask someone else, you look for the fruit yourself. And it will be a sign unto the people when miracles are performed by the Spirit of God, when people are healed in our churches, when demons are cast out, when the Holy Spirit falls upon his people, you will know for certain that God is not dead. When miracles are performed in the midst of unbelievers, they will fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, says 1 Kings 18.39. He is alive and well. And not only is he moving in the lives of believers all around you in this house, he is urging you to call upon his name and be saved as well. To be delivered from your sin and ultimately resurrected with him in heaven, this is a hope that we can cling to. How do I know? I have seen the hand of God in my own life. And if you're looking for that same assurance of the resurrection this morning and you are wrestling with the idea of believing in Jesus, raising from the dead, don't take my word for it. And don't go looking for an empty tomb or a dead body. Call upon him as you would anyone who is alive. Pray to him. Ask him. Reveal yourself to me. And as it is promised in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, if you seek me, you will find. That is a promise. But still someone struggling with this will ask, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 35. How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? Uh, With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow, you do not plant. Uh, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. You see, in this life, we have been given an opportunity to identify with Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. I'm going to call the worship team forward, the, uh, David's harp, I should say, uh, forward. You see that as Paul states in verse 44, if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And it is our choice what we will do with the seed that we have been given. That is to say that the, the gospel is given to us. Our natural body represents what we will do with this gospel, what we will do with this seed. Will we accept it? Will we allow it to germinate in our lives and flourish into a beautiful spiritual garden, honoring God in our lives and all that we say and do? Or will we allow that seed to wither, not wrestling enough to believe? But to those who persist in faith, who have sought the resurrected, living Savior, Jesus Christ, and you have heard from him, and you have known he is alive, we know that there is a hope, one we can assuredly place our faith in, that while we may waver in our faith, he will never waver. And while other hopes leave you feeling empty, Jesus offers a perfect peace, a love that is everlasting, a joy that knows no bounds. He promises you a life that is blessed and assured, something you can place your trust in. For just as Paul concludes in this passage to the Corinthians, I will conclude also. 
that to all who believe in Jesus and have grappled with the tough questions and wrestled to the assurance of faith, knowing for certain that Jesus is resurrected and that one day we will also be with him in heaven, we can ask one more question, not so tough. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together. Hey, Lighthouse family. Thanks so much for tuning in to another one of our podcast sermons. I'm Pastor Joel Sloss. For more podcasts, media, and live stream services at lighthouseniagara.com, Sundays at 10 o'clock. God bless.